And I do want to just send a, a special greeting, introduce you to a, a good friend of mine, Bob Markison. He's sitting right in the back, and Bob, raise your hand just real quick. Yeah. Bob and Debbie, uh, Bob pastors the church, uh, a church down in Hemet West Valley Bible, and, and we've known each other for years and years. And uh, Bob is on sabbatical right now, and it just reminded me, church family, that it was but good to have all of you with us this morning. And are you ready to worship our God through the study of his word? Because that's my responsibility before us this morning. If you'll take your Bible that you brought with you or raise your hand if you need us to supply you with the Bible, which we're very happy to do this morning, uh, turn with me into the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 18, because we're going to be moving in that direction before too long. And uh, also, if I can invite you to reach into your bulletin and pull out, there's a Uh, a little note page there for you. If you'll pull that out and immediately flip it over to the back side, you'll notice that there are listed there on that note page no less than 40 different one another commands found on the pages of our Bibles, mostly in the New Testament. And these come straight to us from the heart of God as lovers of the Lord Jesus, as members of his church. This is his heart for his church and for you and me. These are, as you can tell, commands that, that directly impact the quality and the health of our relationships with one another in the life of our church. And ultimately, depending on how well and consistently we do these one another commands, they can impact in unbelievably powerful ways our effectiveness as a church family for Jesus' cause. When we do them well, Jesus is put on beautiful display for everybody to see. And that's true for us inside the church. It's true for those who are outside of our church family. When we do these one another's well, Jesus is easy to see. When we don't do them well, not only is Jesus hard to see, but we can actually misrepresent him. And that just confuses everybody inside and outside the walls of our church. So church family and visiting friends, we venture this morning for the fourth time into a series that we're calling One Another, and we're venturing into the subject of one anotherism, which might be a new term for some of you. We're hoping that by the enabling power of our God, we're hoping that we can remove all traces of individualism from this place. Individualism, as you might remember, is, is the idea that it's all about me. And the words I and me and mine are big words when you're talking about individualism. And our culture is a culture that promotes individualism. But we're hoping to undo that by God's grace and power and our study of his word. We want to create a culture here of one anotherism, where the words we and us and ours are the words that, that automatically come to our mind. I am praying for one anotherism. Are you? Yeah, I hope that you are doing that. That it would become the air that we breathe here at IBC and that one anotherism would become as natural for us as breathing is. So far in our pursuit of these one another's and one anotherism, we have looked at loving one another, noticing that it really is the foundation on which all of these other one another's rest. And then we have looked at how we are to honor one another We did that on Mother's Day and took a special time to honor our moms that day. And then last time we were together, we uh, looked into what it means to bear with 
one another. Today, we take up one of the toughest and one of the most important one another's from this list, and it is the command to do what? To for, You said that with great enthusiasm. <laughs> to forgive one another, right? To forgive one another. Is there anybody here this morning who doesn't need to think about some thoughts in this direction? Yeah. And so, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, we are here and you are here. Give us ears to hear and minds alert to your truth, a heart ready to receive from you and to be changed. In Jesus' strong name we ask it. Amen and amen. The call, the admonition, the command to forgive one another comes to us from two specific passages in the New Testament. But but it, honestly, it is a truth that is scattered all over the pages of our Bibles. But we'll take a look at these two passages. We'll put them up on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 first read like this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What are the next three words? Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So that's the first main passage. The second comes out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And Paul frames the same idea to another church this way. He writes to the Colossian family and he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and what? Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, perfect harmony. And again, as we noted just a moment ago, love is the foundation upon which all of these other one another's rest. But here in verse 13, we are called very clearly by the Holy Spirit to forgive whatever grievances we may have against one another. Now, there are no less than six different words in our Bible, three from the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. Three of them are Hebrew words and three of them are Greek words. No less than six different words that we find on the pages of Scripture, all of them being rendered into English as the word forgive. Now, were we to take a closer look at all six of these words, we would notice that they all come from basically the same root group of words, which means to cover up or to to hide or to take hold of or to let go of or to set free or to release. These are the ideas that are behind the Greek word to forgive or the Hebrew word to forgive, to let go of, to take away, to, to set free, to release. And so you take all these various nuances to these different words and forgiveness, as our Bibles use this term, means that we release, we let go, we set free a person that has done something to us that has harmed us in some way, that has hurt us or wounded us or damaged us or caused us loss. They've sinned against us. That's That's the bottom line. They have sinned against us. The sin is real. The sin is is painful. They are guilty. They've accrued a sin debt against us. When we forgive, we cancel the debt. 
that they should have to pay for what they've done to us. We cover it. We take it completely away so that they never have to pay us back. They never have to feel indebted again. We absorb that wrong. We deal with it graciously, not repaying in kind, but extending to the offender the very opposite of what they may have done to us. That is the idea behind this word, forgive. It's a command, isn't it? It's not a suggestion. It's a command to all who know and love the Lord Jesus and are part of his church. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And our Heavenly Father gives us this command because even though we are committed and determined as followers of Jesus to be faithful to Him and attentive to one another, we still sin against each other. Agreed? <laughs> we, we do, don't we? Oh, that, I wish that were not so, but it is so. Husbands and wives who are Christians, they hurt each other. Parents and children who follow Jesus, they wound each other. People in this church family who desire to go deeper into the life of their Savior run over others in this room. They run through them sometimes and they run around them sometimes and it is painful, it's uncalled for, it's selfish, and we do it. Agreed? You do that to me and I do that to you. Even though we're running hard after Jesus. And when that happens, when we do that to each other, it pushes our resentment button at the very least and possibly it pushes our revenge button at the worst. When we are wounded by anyone, but especially by a fellow believer, we want to run to this thing called individualism. It's all about me. It's I. And it just, it just does a, a terrible job on one anotherism. So it's an important place for us to hang out and think about. Let's just say it this way. Sin hurts. Agreed? It hurts. It damages. It distances. It separates us from each other. And even though we know that, we are going to sin against each other anyway. Even though we know that. So sooner or later... That's going to happen, either intentionally or unintentionally, but we are going to hurt each other. I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt me. So what are we going to do? What can we do when that happens? Not if it happens, but when it happens. What can we do? Well, brothers and sisters, in the end, when it is all said and done and we strip it all down, there's only one right thing that we can do. And what is that? We forgive. We forgive one another. And if we can't do that, and if we can't do that well and we can't do it consistently, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be in trouble personally, and we're going to be in trouble as a, a family of faith. So important that we get our hearts and our, hand, our minds around this one. We need to find a way to consistently and authentically forgive each other. If we have any hope of growing one anotherism in this place. Now, on your note page, let's unpack this forgive one another command by first acknowledging that granting forgiveness to someone can be one of the hardest things that we're called upon to do in our Christian walk. Would you agree with that thought? Forgiving someone who has hurt us deeply can really be one of the toughest things to those to to, to do 
for those of us who love Jesus. If you live on the mountain and you drive, you will appreciate this funny little story. There was this guy who was trying to cross the street one day here in Idlewild, and as he stepped out onto the road, a car came screaming around the corner right at him. The man tried to hurry across the street, but then the car swerved right to where he was going. And so he did a quick 180, and he spun around to head right back to the very place that he was standing on by the side of the road, and the car turned to go right at him right when he was doing that. So the man stops. He's scared. He's frozen. He's right in the middle of the road, and he lets out this high-pitched scream. The car barely misses him, screeches to a stop right next to him. The window rolls down, and there sits a squirrel in the driver's seat. (laughs) And he says, see, it isn't as easy as it looks. (laughs) And if you drive in Idlewild, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It isn't as easy as it looks. Forgiveness is anything but easy, right? In part, this is true because pain is hard to ignore. And the words and the actions of others can inflict some really deep, really painful wounds. The rude insult, it pierces. The unfaithfulness of someone creates Fear causes anger and sorrow. The dishonesty, the lies that another told to us or about us, it it, it feels like a knife. It, It cuts just like a knife. And it hurts. We feel the pain inflicted on us by another and it leaves an impression on us that goes very deep. We can all think of people in our circle of relationships, people that we know who talk about some wounding that they have received at the hands of another person and then you discover that that wounding happened literally years ago. But it's as if to them it happened yesterday. Do you know somebody like that? The more deliberate the sin that was committed against us by someone, the harder it is for us to forgive them. The more we have invested ourselves into a relationship, the harder it is for us to forgive when the other side of that relationship hurts us. And so bottom line, usually the greater our pain, the harder it is for us to forgive. And I have noticed, and my guess is probably that you have too, church family, that forgiveness, and this is really interesting to me, but true forgiveness seems like it comes harder in the place where we might think it might come more easily. And what place would that be? Right here. Right here in in Jesus' church. I wish that were not so, but I think it is so. And it's true, I think, because though we might not say it, we expect more from our Christian brothers and sisters than we do from somebody who doesn't know Jesus, right? Yeah. After all, they're a follower of Jesus, right? We are doubly disappointed when they fall short in their conduct. They should know better. They're professing this, but they're doing this. That's wrong, and and it's hard for us to let go of that. If an unchurched friend 
did the same exact thing that our Christian friend did to us, we might extend grace and forgiveness to that unchurched friend way quicker than we would to our churched friend, right? After all, our unchurched friend does no better. But the expectations we place on each other within the church make the wounds that we suffer at the hands of one another all that more painful and all that harder to forgive. Offenses that call for our forgiveness often inflict deep wounds and they overly occupy our thoughts with hurt and pain. And then that in turn pushes us towards bitterness and and anger and resentment and eventually exhaustion because holding on to that pain and that unforgiveness is a lot of work. So bottom line, these wounding moments in our life, whether they're intentional or unintentional, have the potential to work great ruin in the life of even the strongest lover of Jesus. There's not a person in this room who knows Jesus who is immune to, to the spirit of unforgiveness and the, then the damages that, that can come from that. But the opposite is also true, brothers and sisters, and, and this is where we want to end up this morning. Forgiveness has the power to deepen and strengthen our spiritual lives our relationships with God and our relationships with each other, as few things can do that. Forgiveness can really do a great, great thing in the life of a church family. It'll come down to whether or not we allow the grace and forgiveness that God has shown us to actually move through us and out to another person who has wounded us. And that's where we want to go now. On your little note page, we want to take a look at the model and the motive for extending forgiveness to those in our lives who do not deserve it. Your Bible is open to Matthew chapter 18. In this chapter, Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness. In fact, you probably have the bold subtitle somewhere on your Bible page that reads what? The parable of the unforgiving servant. Yes. But there was something that prompted Jesus to tell this story. And that something happens beginning in verse 21 of this chapter. So join me right there, and I will read for us. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? So we are right in the pocket. This is the perfect place for us to be on this topic. How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but how many times? Seventy-seven times, or maybe your version says, 70 times seven times, or 490 times. So the subject of forgiveness is on the table. The disciples bring it up, and Peter leads the charge. What a surprise that Peter would be the one to lead the charge. As Peter puts this question to Jesus, he, he actually believes that he's being incredibly generous in his dealings with a brother who has hurt him. If he wounds me, do I forgive him seven times? Peter thinks that's going way over the top because in his day, in, in his Jewish culture, the, the standard was three times. Forgive once, forgive twice, forgive a third time, but that's it. No more forgiveness after someone hurts you three times in that way. And so Peter doubles the amount, and then he throws in one more just for good measure, 
And he thinks, surely this is the standard of forgiveness that Jesus will apply. Jesus answers, no, Peter, (laughs) not seven times, but 77 times. Or even 490 times. Now, was Jesus being literal in this moment? No. No, what Jesus was saying to Peter was this. Peter, don't, don't keep count. There's not even a place for you to go. Just don't even think about the numbers. The message that I bring from heaven does not require that you carry a calculator around as a Christian and keep, keep track. The gospel message that I bring from heaven is a message of forgiveness. God forgives sinners. My gospel message is a gospel of grace. It is a gospel of forgiveness. Be known for your forgiving spirit and let forgiveness be the continual attitude in your heart. Let it be the air that you breathe. Don't count. You you see this? All right. So then Jesus tells his disciples a parable right on the backside of this moment about a man who owed 10,000 talents to his king. Now, a talent was a monetary unit in the first century, and it represented a whole lot of money. In fact, uh, this man owes the equivalent in American dollars of $10 million to his king. Now, this guy, if he was an average day laborer in the first century, made 17 cents a day. He owes $10 million. He makes 17 cents a day. That's That's... That's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. So when the king called him on the carpet and told him he needed to pay up, the guy says he doesn't have that kind of money, but if you'll just give me time, I will pay you back. Was that an absurd statement? Someone has calculated he would need to work 186,000 years to pay back his $10 million debt at 17 cents a day. 186,000 years. So it's absurd. It's ridiculous. The king turns to his aide and he begins to discuss the possibility of selling the man, selling his wife, selling his children into slavery and disposing of all of his personal property in order to recoup just a tiny portion of what the man owes. But then the man pleads for mercy. He falls before the king and he says, oh, king, I can do this. Give me the time, please. And then the king does an amazing thing. He reaches for his ledger and he essentially pulls out all the pages with this man's debt record on it And he throws it away. And he turns to the man and he says, I forgive your debt. Have a great day. Now you would think that the response of the forgiven man would be nothing but the most lavish outpouring of gratitude and appreciation for what he has received. Though not deserved in any way, he has given back his wife, his children, his property, his life, his future. He has been made debt-free in one moment. But the response of the forgiven servant is horrific. It is appalling. And everybody who heard the story would have thought that. Within minutes of leaving the king, he happens across the man who owes him 20 bucks in American currency. Now, we would expect him to be gracious and merciful, just as the king had been to him. 
But no, he grabs the man by the throat. Jesus says that's what he does. He grabs him by the throat and he demands his 20 bucks. And when the man doesn't pay or can't pay, the forgiven servant has this guy thrown into prison. In other words, even though the king had shown the servant $10 million worth of mercy, this servant is unwilling to pass along one five hundred thousandth of that kind of mercy. The point of the parable is impossible to miss. Jesus was saying we have been forgiven such a great sin debt by our God, an infinitely great, incalculable sin debt, a debt that put Jesus on the cross in our place since we could never pay the debt, a debt that required God make Jesus the payment price, his son for our life, so that we could be forgiven. And and God has done that for us, though not deserved. In Jesus, he's done that. We have been forgiven such a great sin debt by our God that for us not to forgive the offense of another whose sin, no matter what it is, cannot compare with what we have done to God, to not forgive that offense would be unthinkable. It would be appalling. It would be of the same kind and caliber as what's in this story. For us not to forgive the offense, the hurt, the wound, the loss that we have suffered at the hands of another person is unthinkable when we realize how much we have been forgiven by God. Are you with me? You see this? It just just falls off the page. It's like $10 million and 20 bucks, right? This is the sin debt we owe God. This is the debt that somebody might owe us who has hurt us. There's no comparison. I call your attention back to Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And then what's the last line? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As God has forgiven us, we are to forgive one another. That's not, that's not gray, is it? That's not fuzzy. That's not a tough theological concept. That is about as simple as it gets for us to understand. Not to do necessarily, but to understand. It's, it's right there. When we, from our wounded place, and the wound can be severe, no denying that, when from that place of pain we say, I am not going to forgive you, or I am not ready to forgive you. We must ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, do I really grasp what I have done to God and what God has done for me? Do I really get it? Him forgiving me through Jesus of every sin in my life, past, present, and future, because the blood of Jesus covers our future sin as well. Every sin that I've committed against Him has been forgiven. All the ways I've grieved Him and grieved his spirit. Do I get it when I'm saying, I just can't forgive you, I'm sorry. I'm not going there. Ephesians 4, 30-32. One more time. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How might we grieve you, Holy Spirit? By not being forgiving. You could grieve me easily. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Yes, it may take some time to get our wounded emotions fully engaged in a forgiving direction. We acknowledge that. But there can be no doubt, brothers and sisters, this is where we have to get to. We don't get to vote on this. It's where we must get to. I have been forgiven so, so much. How can I not show forgiveness when I have been wounded? And not because it's a command from God to me, but simply as an expression, as an overflow of the gratitude that I feel in my heart for the God who has forgiven me. You follow this? Real forgiveness, the best kind of forgiveness flows from a place of gratitude, not a place of duty, not a place of obligation, not a place of obeying the command. It is possible to obey the exhortation from Scripture to forgive but miss the best motive for forgiving, that we would be a reflection of the heart of our God in the world that we live in by forgiving those who do not deserve that. But we do it anyway. But true forgiveness, it calls for more than just a heart of gratitude. There also must be a readiness to trust God. And that's the the next point on your little note page. Because, brothers and sisters, forgiveness requires that we give up our need to have our pain and our hurt and our tears and our loss compensated for or paid for or, or even acknowledged. We give up that right. We give up the right to get even when we forgive. And in order to do that, we've got to trust God to do something for us. Forgiveness as a choice we make runs head on into our desire to see our offender hurt like we've been hurt. That's where, that's where we want to go. Forgiveness demands that we let God be God and trust that he alone can perfectly blend justice and mercy together so that I'm not bitter. I'm better. And the other person that wounded me is better too. I have to trust God for that. If you'll take your Bible, leave Matthew's Gospel, would you, and run to the right, jump over Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, find your way to the book of Romans chapter 12. Forgiveness chooses to love. Mercy over revenge. It chooses to trust God to bring about justice in his own time. Romans chapter 12. Look how powerfully and pointedly this is declared to us. Verse 17. Let me read for us. You follow along in your Bible. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Somebody's hurt me. I'm not to hurt in kind. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You feed him. If he is thirsty, what do you do? You give him something to drink. You do the very opposite of what the world would do. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You will bring shame upon him for how he has treated you as you treat him in a very different way. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Do not, over, do not be overcome by your wounds, but overcome your wounds with forgiveness, we could say in verse 21. Leaving room for God to do his thing, verse 19 says, man, that is hard. That's, that's, that's risky. That takes some real trust. Because you know what? God might not do what we want him to do. He has a tendency of doing that, doesn't he? He might go easier on our offender than we want him to. In fact, from where we stand, it might look like he doesn't do anything to our offender. Or worse yet, our offender was blessed when we gave that over to God. There's no getting around it. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness takes a strong, strong faith. We trust in God's perfect justice and his mercy to bring good to us out of our woundedness and we bring and, and, and he'll bring right out of that a, a help to our to our offender as well. We trust God for that. I think the story that unfolds out of Joseph's life in the Old Testament book of Genesis is a great illustration of trusting God. You remember the story of Joseph's life? Real quick, Joseph's brothers are insanely jealous of him. And so they one day they sell him to slave traders who are headed for Egypt. Joseph is bought. He knows a slave's life for many, many years. At the end of that part of the story, he's thrown into prison unjustly. He spends two more years in prison for something that he did not do. So in short, he suffers much at the hands of his jealous brothers. They've sinned a great sin against him. But if you know the end of the story, Joseph will become the most powerful man in Egypt next to the Pharaoh. And when he is reunited with his brothers near the end of the story, he is able to say this. What you intended for evil, God meant for what? Good to the saving of many lives. I have trusted God through this whole thing. Did Joseph repay his brothers for all that he had experienced at their hand? Absolutely not. And so God is the master story writer, church family. And he's able to weave a plot for our lives that uses even the sin and the evil and the hurt and the pain that others have inflicted upon us. He can use that to a greater and higher purpose than we could ever imagine. But we've got to trust him. We've got to trust him and let him do that. The question is, will I? I've been hurt badly. Will I trust you, God, my Father, to take this moment and bring good out of it? Good for me, good for the one who has hurt me. Will I trust you? Now, as we noted earlier, this isn't easy, but it's a must. We don't get to vote. Because there is, brother or sister, there is a price that is to be paid for refusing to forgive. And what is that price? I'm sure you have an answer or an idea, but let me just tell you where I go with this thought. The price of unforgiveness is that you condemn yourself to live out your days in the dungeon of your past for as long as you remain unforgiving. You live out your days in the dungeon of your past. We can caress the pain. We can rehearse over and over again the wrongs that somebody has done to us. We can 
be justified, we think, in our own minds for how much we hurt. And we can, we can play the videotape over and over and over again if we want to. And although it is twisted and wrong, we can find a strange happiness in holding on to that hurt that someone has inflicted upon us and just turning it over and over and over again. But where we spend our days when we don't forgive is in the past. Robbed of the joy of the present, the anticipated joy of of the future, we get stuck living through a rear-view mirror, and that is a terrible way to do the Christian life. Agreed? Man. You know, we may even convince ourselves that we're doing okay, but you know what? When we don't forgive, we are slowly poisoning ourselves, and we may not even realize it. Look again at Ephesians 4, this passage that we've been hanging out in. How does it read in verse 31? Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. What is the price of not forgiving? It's all those things in verse 31, is it not? It's all of those things. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness and rage, which makes us quick to accuse and takes away any margin we have to respond in kindness. Slander follows in a crude attempt to perhaps turn other people against the one who hurt us. We're going to slander possibly. And malice leads us to wish trouble and evil on that offender. And that definitely is out of step with the heart of our God. But that's all the places that unforgiveness goes. And you know what? Our unforgiving spirit may get its way, causing some hurt to that person exacting some measure of revenge, casting some blame on them, and everybody knows they did this thing. But in truth, the greatest victim when we don't forgive is who? Man, it's it's always going to be us. Bitter and joyless. We may get our pound of flesh, but as long as we remain unforgiving, our offender holds us prisoner. No wonder Jesus spoke so strongly to Peter's question and to the need to forgive. No wonder the Holy Spirit admonishes us repeatedly. Let go of unforgiveness out of a loving gratitude for the God who has forgiven you and out of a desire to be free. At the bottom of your little note page, I quote a, uh, make a quote from Lewis Smedes. This, this is just really is powerful for me to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was me right it was me it's always going to be in our best interest to forgive always that leads us to wrap up by simply thinking about some of the good things that forgiving one another brings into our lives we can anticipate some really cool possibilities forgiveness means we release our offenders We give them to God because he can deal with them much better than we can. That honors God greatly, and that increases our faith. It means that in releasing them, we release ourselves from the past. We live in the present, and the present is where God is. It's where our relationships are. We want to live in the present. Forgiveness means that in releasing my offender to God and letting go, I don't have to worry about whether they are uh, sorry for what they did, whether they repent, or whether they're remorseful. It does not matter. My joy is in the now, and it's not contingent upon the response of the one who hurt me because I've let them go. That's God's concern now. 
And forgiveness holds the potential for a wounded relationship to be restored. At least we've done our part to make that possible. Forgiveness uses the past hurt as a means of strengthening the relationship. If the person who hurt us receives our forgiveness and desires the relationship, you can have a greater relationship than you had before the offense. But it takes forgiveness to make that work. But most important is that in forgiving one another, we reflect the heart of our Heavenly Father. Yes? We reflect the heart of Jesus. There's no sin we cannot forgive wholeheartedly and generously when we see clearly how we, he who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 There's no sin we can't forgive when we know what Jesus has done for us. So we reflect his heart. If forgiveness cannot be found in the church, brothers and sisters, if it cannot be found here, where will it be found? Nowhere. Those of us who stand at the foot of the cross, surrounded by the towering mountains of grace, must bear witness to the power of Jesus to change a life. And one of the ways we do that is by forgiving one another. And so as we wrap all this up, it is possible in the time that we have been sharing this topic together that you've been feeling a sharp poke in your ribs, figuratively speaking. And that poke is coming from the Holy Spirit. Because all this time we've been talking, there is somebody's name that keeps coming up. Maybe somebody's name in this room. Someone else who calls Bible Church home and they're in the first service. I don't know. Maybe it's somebody outside the church. But there is a name that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And it's a person who's hurt you. And they've hurt you deeply. And the wounds are there. And in this moment, they're holding you captive. You're their prisoner. And you're still living in the past because of unforgiveness. In this moment, it is quite possible that the Holy Spirit is offering you freedom. He wants to release you. He wants you to express the heart of the Father, the heart of Jesus. Let this thing go and live in the present with the forgiveness that he has given you. So let's take a moment. It's an opportunity for you to, to, to honestly just come before your Father in heaven humbly and talk to him. Bring this person to you, to him. Name their name. And give that person to the Lord. Trust him to do what Romans 12 says. Out of gratitude to God for how he has forgiven you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, I sense this as a, a really pivotal moment, possibly for some in this room. They are weary, so tired of harboring a hurt harboring an unforgiving spirit towards someone who has, has hurt them so deeply. And they want to be free of that. They want, they want to go in this direction. 
but they're not able to do it in their own strength. And so I plead with you, Father, by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, release any of our friends in this room this morning who are harboring unforgiveness towards another, possibly a brother or sister even in this room. Help them out of a gratitude for the great debt that they have been forgiven, out of a desire to bring glory and honor to you, out of a desire to reflect the Jesus that they love, out of a desire to be free. Allow them. Enable them to do that in this moment. Let them walk out of these doors with the joy of a forgiving heart. Only you can do this. But oh, can you do this. And by doing this, Heavenly Father, create more and more an atmosphere of one anotherism in this place. Let it be the air that we breathe. We love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's stand together.